0: Uh, This morning, we are going to begin the process of looking at the five words that are on this little postcard that you've received. Uh, We're going to be considering each of those words at different times uh, over the next two weeks. And this morning, we're going to consider uh, the word promise. I was traveling back from Dallas, Texas on Thursday morning. I'd been speaking at a church uh, in Fort Worth Sunday uh, Sunday through Wednesday of this week. And as I was waiting to get on the plane, those of you that travel know that they do the pre-boarding. For anybody who's traveling with small children or needs a little extra time going down the runway, you know I've got this thing this memorized in my head. Um, but there was a father and a son who were standing there, and they were saying goodbye to one another. And the son was probably I'm going to guess eight or nine years old. And uh, I was I was fairly close to them, and I could overhear the dad uh, telling his son that he would see him again soon. Uh, that he had such a great time when they were visiting together, and that uh, he did not need to worry that they they would be together again. And he kept making this promise of, I I will see you soon. And uh, speaking very calmly in a very quiet voice, and the little boy, you could tell, was a little bit upset. I wasn't sure if it was because he was traveling alone. Uh, Getting on a plane when you're 8 years old by yourself can be a little daunting. Getting on a plane when you're 54 years old can be a little daunting. But uh, as he walked down the, the runway, I watched the dad who turned and he, and he watched him all the way as far as he could. And then he got out his phone and he began to text. And I assume he was texting somebody on the other end of the, the trip to let him know that the little boy was getting on the plane. And as he was texting, he started to kind of do this a little bit. And he texted text a little more. And then he kind of took a sleeve of a shirt and kind of did this little bit. And he sat down and he was kind of had his head tucked, uh, trying not to bring attention to himself. And he finally gave up on the text and he just basically sat there for a couple minutes and wept. I don't know what promise he made to his son, whether he was going to be able to keep it or not. I'm not finding fault with that particular story. I think it's, a, I don't know the man, I don't know the background, but it's a story with which we're all very familiar because we live in a broken world. We live in a world of, of broken promises. My, my guess is, is that they, uh, they started out together as a family and promises were made uh, commitments were made, but then life became maybe too much to bear and those promises ended up not being able to be fulfilled. Every one of us probably knows the experience of disappointment of a promise that has been given but hasn't been kept or the shame and the guilt of making a promise we haven't been able to keep. As so we look at Scripture, there's a very different picture of God when it comes to promises than there is to this broken world and yet when we look at scripture through the lens of our lives sometimes we wonder whether or not promises that are that are listed in scripture are simply there to kind of kind of keep us in check and doing the, the things that good church people should do or do they really are they really true are they really going to come about? Are the promises that God makes in Scripture, which give us great hope for this world, as well as glory for the next, are they reliable? Are they true? That's what I want to consider this morning. I'm going to take you through uh, two texts very quickly as a way of introduction before we get to our main text this morning. The first is in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, where Paul writes, For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, is not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why through him we utter our amen to the glory, to God for his glory. Paul says that God is keeping his promises through Jesus. And that the the, the response that mankind gives is yes and amen. When I look at Jesus and I see what he's done in Scripture. And I see the promises that God makes through him. Paul says we have reason to celebrate, and the reason behind our celebration is that we can trust that God's word is true. And so Paul, even in in the midst of a broken world, is confident and is celebratory about the person of Jesus Christ. That takes me back then to Matthew chapter 21 and what we call the triumphal entry. Today's Palm Sunday, I want to reread for you. Perhaps you've heard this before. Maybe this will be new to you. But this is Jesus coming into Jerusalem the week before he's crucified, the first nine verses of chapter 21. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and they came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied, a colt with her. Tie them and bring them to me. If anyone asks you, uh, says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them. And he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet, saying, "Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden." And the disciples went and did as Jesus directed them, and they brought the donkey, the colt, and put them on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road. Others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds went before him. And, the, and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. The people that greeted Jesus on what we call Palm Sunday were celebrating. And they were celebrating in the context of God's promises. The promise of a coming Messiah who would be the son of David. He would be of the line of the great King David, of whom we read in the Old Testament. Why is Paul so convinced? Why are the people of Jerusalem shouting for joy? What are the promises of God? Why are they found in Jesus, and do they have anything to do at all with the life that you and I are living today in this particular generation? That's a question we're going to look at this morning. Our main text is going to be in Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 10 hear the word of God once again. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall lie down with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together. And a little child shall lead them, and the cow and the bear will eat. Uh, excuse me. Shall uh, graze uh, together? Their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat like the ox. The nursing child shall play by the hole of the cobra. The wean child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse. Who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. This is a reading of God's holy and perfect word to him alone. Be glory. Let's pray. Father, we live in a world full of broken promises. Lord, we feel the effect of that on a fairly regular basis in our lives. Some of us make promises we don't keep. We end up uh, kind of kicking ourselves and being uh, frustrated that we've disappointed those around us once again. Father, others of us have, uh, have trusted in people who have given us their word only to be, uh, to be deceived or to be let down. And we've promised ourselves that we won't trust quite as quickly next time. Promises don't mean very much. We have to have contracts to, to hold ourselves to our word, and and then we even try to break our contracts. And yet, Lord, when we come to your word, it, it almost seems on every page there's a promise that you make about yourself and about your interaction with this broken world. And Lord, quite frankly, some of us don't want to be taken in again. It's not that we don't want to have faith. It's not that we, we want to be people who are, who are critical or skeptical. But, Lord, we've, we've been burned before, and we don't want that to happen. So for some of us, Father, we, we, we talk about faith, but we hold it at arm's length. So, Lord, I, I pray that this word promise would um, be something with which we wrestle this morning. Uh, this passage in Isaiah is filled with promises. Lord, I pray that you would you would help us to understand this word in the context of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I, I can't work through this passage in a way that would, would do it justice in, in the next few minutes. There is so much here, and it's so rich and it's so deep, but sometimes our pain is so deep it's hard to hear. And so, Lord, I, I just pray for all of us. Uh, for the one who's preaching, who knows that... Uh, he can certainly disappoint others by not keeping his own word. To those who hear your word, Father, help us to worship you with our minds with our hearts. Help us to be open to your truth, which is glorious and redemptive and healing. Father, forgive me for my sin. Don't let me stand in the way of what you want us to hear and to know this morning. We pray in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. I want to work through this passage in Isaiah with you this morning for a few moments and look at different aspects of these promises because, again, all of us have have, have been on the negative side of promises at one point uh, or another in our lifetimes, and yet, as you come to Scripture, it is it is filled, as we, as we said earlier and during the prayer, that God is making promises. And so I want to look at kind of the foundation of those promises, what lies behind them, and then how do they work out, what, what are the benefits, what are the outcomes, and who's included? In these promises that God makes, and so we're going to try and work through it in that order. I want to begin by studying uh, what Isaiah says here in his prophetic word about the character behind the one who is making the promises. <clears throat> this passage is talking about uh, the Messiah, the Anointed One, and, and there are certain things that that uh, Isaiah makes very clear about why we can trust these promises, and it really has to do with the character of this the son of of david this one who's coming from jesse so as we look at the character the first thing i want you to notice is the bookends of of the lineage of this one who is going to come he is both human and divine in chapter 11 verse 1 it says there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of jesse now jesse was the father of king david uh, who we read about in first uh, in and Second Samuel in the Old Testament. David was the, was the great king of Israel. He was the one that, that united all of Israel. He was the one that followed the disappointment of King Saul. and he was a, a man who said he was the man after God's own heart. David was, was a hero uh, of a man. And the one who is coming is going to be coming from that lineage. He, he is the uh, growing out of the stump. So that the tree, the, the, the kingdom of David, has fallen. And Isaiah's prophesying around the year 720, and the nation of Israel is no longer existing. It's been broken into two pieces. They're being attacked by all kinds of enemies from the outside. And the last thing that is going to come to their rescue, it would appear, is someone out of the, the line of David. And yet they, uh, Isaiah says there's a descendant of Jesse coming. But the passages bookend with an understanding that it's not just a descendant, But it's also a forerunner of Jesse. If you look at verse 10, it says, In that day, the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal to all people. He is not only human, but he is also divine. The one who comes from Jesse supersedes Jesse. He is indeed the Son of God. And this is great help for us in the sense of the promise in that the one who is going to come, and we see him in the person of Jesus Christ, is fully human. He, he is a hundred percent human. He understands our frailty. He understands our disappointment, He understands our shame, he understands our struggle, but he is also divine, which means he has the power to do something about it. He has the power to bring healing and redemption. He's both human and divine, but he is also at one with the spirit of the Lord And verse 2 says, "And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And we'll get to in just a minute the way he defines, uh, the characteristics of the Spirit of the Lord, <clears throat> but this is to say that that this one who is going to come, and and God the Father, they're on the same page. There's not a shred of, of of separation between them. And you think about when Jesus came in His earthly ministry, He said very clearly, and John records it most often in His Gospel, "I've come to do the will of My Father. I can only do that which He has sent Me to do." Uh, we'll come to, uh, to a Good Friday in a few days, but we remember when Jesus is praying in the garden, he says, Lord, let this cup pass from me. If I don't have to go to the cross, let's find another, well, yet another way, yet not my will, but yours be done. The Spirit of the Lord brings a unifying presence in the person of the Messiah. And then Isaiah goes on to explain some of the characteristics of this Spirit. In verse 2, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Just a brief comment on each one of those. First, Isaiah says, a spirit of wisdom and understanding. In other words, he's able to see into the heart of the issue. He's able to discern uh, what is really going on. And, and this is a, a governing type of term, that he's going to come with wisdom and understanding, such that a ruler would need to execute His or her office in a faithful manner. So this one who's going to come, he's able to see into the heart of the issue and he directs the appropriate outcomes as he governs. But is also a spirit of counsel and might, which is a military term. And the idea behind this understanding is that this one who comes, he's able to devise a right plan for battle. Uh, if, you, if you study military history at all, you look at how, how generals or how commanders uh, set up their forces, how they, they plan the attack or they plan the defense. And, and they're successful, more or less. Uh, there are a lot of factors, but a lot of it has to do with the planning phase. And that's that, that word, counsel, that he understands how to plan for the fight. But he also is mighty. He has the prowess to win the battle. You see, that was what was going on in the week uh, that Jesus was in Jerusalem and at the cross. And, and that morning uh, that we'll celebrate next week, the resurrection, what was taking place was a, was a battle. And the disciples thought that Jesus lost when he was at the cross. The theme for our, for our study this week is, was it not necessary? And that's taken directly from a conversation that the risen Christ is having with a couple of his disciples on the road to Emmaus when they think that they've lost, when they think that the battle is over and done and that they are doomed forever. And Jesus says, you don't understand, I, I have a perfect strategy, I have a perfect plan and I have the power to execute, a spirit of counsel and might, but then also a spirit of knowledge, And fear of the Lord. Knowledge is simply the ability to grasp the truth. And the truth is that the Lord God reigns. He is the Almighty One, He is the one who loves His people. And therefore, we take that truth and apply it to our life. And Jesus did that in a perfect way. He knew His Father, He knew Him intimately. And therefore, he was able to apply that knowledge to his life and live in a way that allowed him to go to the cross for you and for me. This is the character behind the one who makes these promises. The true knowledge led him to a correct action. So I want to go down a bit of a side road application-wise this morning and simply ask this question. Does my life and your life, if we're a disciple, if we claim to follow Jesus this morning, do we reflect this kind of character? Not that we are supposed to be perfect, not that we're called to perfection. We're we're called by grace through faith. We're going to get it wrong. But do we spend enough time with with our Father, with the Lord Jesus in prayer and studying the Word so that He rubs off on us? So that his character begins to become not just influential, but transformative of my character. Am I more trustworthy because I know Jesus? I ought to be. If his word and his spirit are making a difference in my life. You see, I think part of of this character helps us understand that God is giving us reason to believe. Jesus gave his disciples reason to trust in him. It wasn't a blind faith. They observed in his life a character that honored and glorified God. Do people see that in my life? Do people see that in your life? If you, if you talk to, I saw a study on this, if you talk to uh, adults who grew up in the church, who grew up with believing parents but have rejected the faith and have walked away from it, the vast majority of them give the same exact reason. My parents didn't live what they claimed to believe. Now, again... This is not about perfection. It's not about saying I can never make a mistake in front of my children. But part of believing and part of having the character of God wrap off on my life is when I mess up with my kids, going to them and asking for their forgiveness just as I ask my fathers. That's living out the character of God in my life. But that is the character that stands behind the promises. Let's look for a moment at the outcome of his promise. In verse 3, Paul writes this, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. The joy in his relationship with his father is what motivates him. He shall delight in the fear of the Lord. That word delight there in the Hebrew actually has a connotation of uh, aroma and a sense of smell. So I was, I mentioned earlier, I was in Texas this week, and the pastor of the church where I was speaking took me to lunch one day over by the, uh, the stockyards in Fort Worth, and they've got this incredible barbecue place at the, at the, by the stockyards, and we walk in, and we, you know, we kind of drive down the street and you know, see all the, all the you know, kind of touristy stuff, we go, I'm going to take you to this restaurant that's kind of tucked in the back here, and we walked in the door, and I just went, oh man, this is, this is going to be good. <laughs> We're not going to get out of here after there for a few pounds later. And we sat down, and the woman, you know, came and said, you know, what would you like? And, you know, drink. We got some iced tea and water. And she said, are you ready to order? And I said, yeah. She goes, what do you have? And I said, e- anything. <laughs> Everything. <laughs> How about one of each? <laughs> it all smells good. What's your best? She's like, oh, that's a hard question. I'm like, yeah, I know. It's, you know and just the aroma and I just I couldn't wait and I ended up having short ribs which were just absolutely unbelievable i'm sure didn't have any calories but there was a delight in sitting on that bench and 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 just enjoying those ribs now that's a goofy example but but isaiah says that every morning the messiah woke up and went about his work while he was here on earth his delight was in god you're reading about jesus he's always going off to a solitary place and praying He's always kind of going out of the way and, and, and just being off by himself. And, and, and it wasn't because he had to. It wasn't because he went, oh, got to have my quiet time. And if I don't have my quiet time, I'm going to be in trouble. It's like I couldn't wait to talk to my father this morning. And that is part of the outcome. That delight rubs off on us. But he also has the ability to see beyond appearances and hear true motives behind words. Look again at, at verse 3. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear. He has the gift of discernment. Now, every parent gets this. If you've ever walked into a room and you have more than one child, and they're more than just teeny tiny babies, and every once in a while they're doing what? They're going at it, right? And you walk in the room, and now you're like the guy with the stripes on and the whistle. You're the referee. And uh, you say say something silly like, what's going on in here? (laughs) Like they're going to give you an honest answer. And, uh, and, and what immediately probably happens is they start pointing fingers. Well, she did this, and, and, and she did, and no, wait a minute. He did that, and I didn't do that until he did. And all of a sudden, you've got, you know, this kind of mess on your hands. Who's right? Who's wrong? Who started? Who didn't start it? And, you know, I, I kind of just said, well, just punish them all, and it'll, it'll all sort itself out in the laundry eventually. But you need the gift of discernment as a parent. You need to be able to kind of look at it and go, you know what? I know what she's saying, but she's always prodding him. I know it because I'm watching when she doesn't know I'm watching her. And I know he says he, he was only retaliating, but I know sometimes he figures that the best defense is a good offense, <laughs> and he may have smacked there first. And there, there's some discernment that's needed, and if you just kind of come in and say, hey, kids, what happened? And you just kind of naively believe everything they tell you, it's going to be a mess. And the outcome of, of this one who is promised is that he has the ability to see beyond the surface, which should be both disturbing and consoling for every one of us. God's not fooled by what you and I say. God isn't tricked by our false piety. He doesn't go, oh, look at how nice they're acting today. Isn't that wonderful? They're so sweet. He looks into the motives of our hearts. And he doesn't just see with his eyes and hear with his ears. He discerns, but it should also give us great hope because even as he knows the very worst about us, he chooses to love us. You cannot surprise God with the depth of your sin nor with your self-righteous activity. Neither of those is going to shock God. You'll never surprise God to the extent that he goes, you know what? If I'd known that about him, I wouldn't have died for him in the first place. It won't ever happen. And that discernment should bring great peace to our souls if our trust and our hope is in him because here's where that leads him look at at what he does do he isn't going to just look and listen casually but with righteousness verse four he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. This is going to be one who brings forth justice and equity for all. You cannot buy his favor, nor does your low or, or, or modest standing keep you out of the mix. God is not a respecter of persons, so to speak. So if you look at the Gospels, you see this all the time. Jesus treated Zacchaeus, who was a guy of enormous wealth, and a lot of influence and a lot of power, exactly the same way he treated the blind beggar on the roadside. They were both the same to them, him. People who needed a savior. And so he dealt with them honestly and truthfully. There were no favorites with him. This son of David is impartial. He is always fair. And his word is law. It is by his truth and his power that he makes good. On all of his promises, he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, with the breath of his lips. He shall kill the wicked. He he only needs to speak his truth for the world to understand and to see the reality of this promise. All who hate the Lord and love evil are defeated, but all who trust in him will find him to be faithful. Those are some of the outcomes of his promises. What, is, what benefit do we derive? How, how is that encouraging for us? How does that help us in any way? And in verses 6 through 8, and then we'll add tack on verse 9 in just a moment, we see that there's actually a, a switch that's coming, uh, a restoration that's going to take place. When these promises reach their zenith and their pinnacle, when Christ establishes the new heavens and the new earth, for all of eternity. Verse 6, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, the leper shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like an ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. There's a peace and a harmony that extends throughout the entire created order. This is called by theologians uh, Edenic theology, which simply means a return to Eden. If you go back and you read the first couple of chapters in Genesis, you see this harmony. You see this, this world in perfection as God created it. And so what Isaiah is pointing to is a return to how things should have been all along had we not broken it with our sin and our rebellion. In other words, the curse of sin is going to be reversed. Old enmities will be long forgotten. I, I just realized this as I was studying this. When I get to heaven, I won't, I won't have any more Chicago Cubs jokes because there won't be any, any more reason to, to, you know, to, to make fun of them anymore. Um, there, there won't be any enemies. I won't have to hate the Detroit Red Wings anymore. Predator and prey will become obsolete terms. Today's danger won't even be a memory. You see a picture of, of the child who, who is putting his hand inside the adder's den. And you go back to the curse of sin in chapter 3 of Genesis. And there's, there's, there's a fight that actually goes on. There, there's, there's enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And, and the serpent will strike his heel, but he will crush his head. And, and once that battle is done, even, even the child and the serpent's relationship can be restored. Not representing Satan, but, but the created order. This is, this is a world in which peace and harmony are the norm of the day. So a question that strikes me is if that's where we're headed, are we planting those seeds today? Does my life make peace in this world? Does my life bring about peace in relationships? I wrote in my notes, am I a peacemaker or a rabble rouser? Uh, and I just like that term. I, I wanted to use it. but but am I one who the the transforming power of God is is making me a person who longs for peace and unity within the body of Christ and within this world? there were There was a group of young Christians that got convicted about this uh, about ten or twelve years ago. And they lived in Amsterdam, and they they were really, in many ways, feeling so frustrated with the lack of Christianity in Europe, and they were sharing their faith with people, and people just weren't responding. And so they lived in, in, near a, a school where international students came, and a group of about 16 of them who were, who were graduate students decided to get a house together and to live together for three or four years. And they came from every continent, South Americans and Asians, North Americans, Europeans, and they lived together in this house. And the whole goal was to try to get along, <laughs> to try to let their faith determine their relationships with one another. And I remember reading about some of the just differences in culture and some of the conflicts that 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 brought, but also the the constant commitment of those folks to prayerfully seek to live at peace with 15 other people, not a whole continent, not not a whole city, just with 15 other folks. But as God began to work his peace in their relationship, people began to come to Christ for salvation because people could see the sermon and not just hear it. People go see the word of God actually made a difference, that there was a benefit from knowing Christ. And that benefit is that you're a person who seeks peace, who seeks to bring unity, who seeks to bring restoration to broken relationships. Do people know more about God's peace because they know me? It's a fair question to ask, according to Isaiah. One last thought. We see the character behind his promise that's led by the Spirit. We see the outcome, the justice and the equity. We see the benefit of the the peace that is coming when Christ establishes his kingdom forever. Who gets to be part? (laughs) Uh, Is there a certain select group or are the doors wide open? Verse 10 says this, in that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire. And his resting place shall be glorious. God isn't in the business of exclusion. God isn't in the business of keeping people at arms late. God is in the business of opening the doors wide and saying, all who put their faith in my Messiah will have eternal life. Who receives the benefits of this promise? Anyone, anywhere, anytime by faith. The only thing that keeps you away from God and salvation through Christ is is you. If you decide you don't want it, but God always extends the offer. God's door is wide open, not the door of the church, although the church should reflect that, but God's door is open through the person of Jesus Christ. That's what we're celebrating. That's why we call it Holy Week. It's a week that's set apart from everything else because God did the culmination of his redemptive work so that all who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's why Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 28, go into all the world and make disciples. All the authority in heaven and earth that has been given to me, go share that with everyone. Everyone. If you go to the very end of the Bible and you look in chapter 21 of Revelations, you see a picture of the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and the new earth. And one of the things that John sees as he's seeing this vision is all the nations are walking in the light of the new Jerusalem. People from every language, tribe, and tongue are included in God's redemptive power. If you go to chapter 22 and you see another picture, picture of Eden being restored, you see on the, on the, on the words of the page that the leaves of the tree of life are for what? For the healing of the nations. God is not looking to turn people away. He is looking to enlarge his kingdom. The inclusion in his promise is for all who put their faith in him. So I come back to the Apostle Paul and say he was right (laughs) to say yes and amen. All of the promises of God find their fulfillment in Jesus And this morning, he's inviting every person in this room to be part of that promise, to to receive the trustworthiness of that promise, the stability, the hope, the future of that promise. The people greeting Jesus on what we call Palm Sunday had good cause to celebrate. They got it wrong later in the week, but in that particular moment, they were dead on the money. Here comes the son of David. Here comes the one who will be the one who keeps God's promises. Today, as disciples, we're not home yet. The promises are in process. They're not fully realized. Christ hasn't returned yet again to establish his kingdom forever. And at times, I think you and I can lose our perspective. So I just have three uh, words for myself and for you this morning. I think it's important that we remind ourselves about the promises of God. I think it's important that we go back to his word on a regular basis because I need those promises because I, I can't hold on to God. If God doesn't hold on to me, I'm in big, big trouble. And I need to be reminded that these promises are given and I simply need to respond in faith. So I need to reflect that to the world. My life needs to be a life of faith, not a life of obligation, not a life of duty, not a life saying, okay, I got to make sure I do all the things a good Christian person should do And I'm not saying that there aren't great things that Christians should do, but it needs to be a reflection of the character of my God who makes these promises. And then we need to rejoice. We need to celebrate because these promises are true. And they're for you and for me and for everybody who would believe. So I got off the plane in St. Louis. Two things happened. I'll tell you the second one first. I got on the plane. It was 62 degrees. I got off the plane. It was 22 degrees. What's up with that? And then there was a guy outside the baggage claim who couldn't figure out whether he was going to get it. Uh, he was standing in the doorway, couldn't decide what he was going to do. And he just stood there with the door open and the wind just kind of blowing through on about 30 of us. We're like, really? You just like get out of the doorway, close the doors? But the little boy got off the plane. And his mom was waiting at the other end. She gathered him up in her arms. Buddy, I'm so glad to see you. So happy that's your home. Now, that's only halfway good. And, and, the, and the example is lacking because somewhere in there, there, there were broken promises. But it reminded me that one day, all of this is going to be fixed. And it's not going to be made right by a God who says, well, that's what I need to take care of them. <laughs> it's what God's supposed to do. It's my job. It's going to be made right by a God who can't wait to gather you up in his arms. The God who makes these promises and is powerful to fulfill them, who can slay the whole world with, just with the breath of his mouth, is a God who wants to welcome you home in Christ. He wants you to know that his promise is good, not just because he's powerful, but because he's loving. Will you pray with me? Father, I thank you that Scripture is so different than the experiences of this world. Father, we, so often we just, you know, who can I trust? <laughs> not too many folks. Am I trustworthy? Well, not as often as I should be. And yet, Lord, you never make a promise that you don't keep. And Father, your promise is one of compassion and of mercy. Your promise is one of, as Paul says, yes and amen. Because it is a promise of redemption. And the only thing that keeps me separated from, from that love and that mercy is if I choose to not believe, to not receive it by faith. So, Father, I pray for faith for every person in this room today. I don't care what else we have. I don't care how rich we are, how poor we are. I don't, I don't care what any other need is, Father. That is the most important need that you you would create faith in every heart, that we would receive and rest in the promises of God, which will last for all of eternity. Lord Jesus, we praise you, we worship you, and our trust and our hope is in you alone. Amen.